Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Scott Schnars, Vice President of Americas at Cloudinary. Cloudinary provides a rich platform to enable developers, marketers, and creative professionals at companies of all sizes to manage their image, video, and other digital assets. They have over a million developers using the platform today and over 10,000 enterprise customers worldwide. And best of all, they haven't raised any outside venture capital money, which is kind of wild. Prior to Cloudinary, he was SVP of Worldwide Sales at the Dynamic Signal, MVP of Sales and Marketing at Retention Science. So just a few years of experience and all kinds of great things that we can talk about. Scott, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. Alex, it's awesome to be here. Thank you so much. I hope that I can kind of impart the same wisdom that your other uh, guests have uh, been able to do. I've, I always take a little bit of gold from this. Awesome. I appreciate it. I'm excited. So, well, where I'd actually want to start is, so you just got out of a CRO gig and you're looking yeah. for your next gig and you pick Cloudinary. Why? Like, how did you go through that? I think there's a lot of people out there that are these sales leaders. Maybe they have an exit. Maybe there's an IPO. Maybe, like something happens and they decide to say, hey, I'm going to make my next move to what? Like, where where do we go? How did you pick uh, Cloudinary? Yeah, so we when I left Dynamic Signal, I joined there and it was a little under $5 million in ARR. We grew that to 38 when I left four years later. So it was a pretty good run, good growth there. I took about nine months off, and during that time, I did a lot of soul searching to figure out, okay, well, what do I want to do next? And was getting to that age where the idea of going back and being a CRO of a five or a $10 million a year company just was not super attractive to me. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of risk. The upside is relatively limited unless it's a massive home run, which you know, there, there's not too many massive home runs out there. And I just, I, I didn't want to do that again. I wanted to see how a larger company that had product market fit actually worked. So I basically sat down and said, okay, like who are the SaaS companies that are somewhere between, you know, 75 and $150 million a year in ARR. And I made a long laundry list of, of that. And, and ironically, Cloudinary was not on that list because nobody had ever heard of Cloudinary. Like we, we were not investing in marketing at that time. They had reached out to me through a recruiter I talked to 40 people about it, Alex, the company, and wow. 38 of them had never heard of Cloudinary. They're wow. like, we have no idea. And two of them said, do whatever you need to do in order to go work there. Wow. And I kind of took that as a sign and the, the, the stars sort of lined up. It was a really good product. The people that used the product absolutely loved it. Customer retention was amazing uh, at the time and, and still is to this day. The people were really, really good people. And the fact that they were much more focused on profitability and smart and, you know, kind of smart growth, not being crazy about like, let's go out and hire, you know, hundreds of people and burn all of this cash. They just had like a really methodical way of thinking about growth. And, you know, as a result, the company has grown 30 to 40% a year, basically since the inception of the company 11 years ago. And, you know, in this day and age where you hear like, oh, you have to triple, 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 double, 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 or whatever the, 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 that is, like, yeah. we don't think that way. We think much more about what is the longer term success look like for this and, and think about the company 10 or 20 years down the road, 
without burning everybody out by kind of going crazy with hiring and having these, you know, uh, generally unobtainable targets that are set by a, a third party board. So, you know, all those things lined up and it, it's just been a great run over the last four years here. Well, we're going we're gonna to dive into this. So that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that's what is just fascinating is they don't have any outside capital. Correct. And so when you don't take outside capital, you can do what's the right thing for the company, not what's right for somebody that's on the board that says you need to go hit these magical milestones that may or may not be feasible or not. So exactly it's really, really powerful. And you got one kick ass product. So one of the things that you oftentimes see at those earlier seed series A, even sometimes series B companies is product is not catching up to sales. It's kind of the sales and marketing engine, which is out there leading the charge. And all the sales or go-to-market people are really just kind of praying that the product can eventually catch up one day. And more times than not, unfortunately, it doesn't. Right. The few that do obviously go on to, to achieve great things, but so often they don't. So you're turning it around and saying, hey, this is a product-led focused company. You got a great product. And then now let's put a, a big intentional sales spin to it. So I'm excited yeah, to dive I, into I, this. I spent a lot of my career selling vaporware. So it was like the idea of like going and selling something that was already established and worked well. And that's not to take anything away from the other companies that I've worked at, because we, we were able to get a lot of those going to a point where the, the product actually did catch up to sales. But joining an organization where the product worked and was established and it just made life a lot easier when we walked in the door. Yeah. So let's do this. How about walk us through a little bit about so when you actually started, wh yeah. what did the actual sales team look like? What were you walking into like org chart, revenue, team size, go to market motion? Like what did that look like? Kind of like what did you what did you walk in and inherit? Yeah, so I, I inherited a relatively small team. But but keep in mind, as, as a product led growth company, the company I, I joined in the fall of 2019, um, my boss, who is the, the CRO, joined in the spring of 2019. Prior to that, there was never any uh, real investment into any kind of, of sales infrastructure. So he joined, and like there was a couple of salespeople, but like he, he immediately terminated them. And then I joined, I inherited kind of the three people that were left over there. And you know, it was, they were good salespeople, but they had no discipline in place. There wasn't they didn't have a lot of that sales love. So, you know, my, my first day I show up, I'm like, hey, can I see a pipeline? And I, you know, people looked at me like I had three heads. And then it was like, okay, now we're going to do QBRs. And people had no idea what that was. So it was like building that out. Yeah. We didn't really have like a well-defined sales process. So it was a lot of sitting down and with the, the three people and kind of going over like each of their deals and understanding like, okay, well, like what happened in the first phone call? What did you guys do? And then what happened in the second phone call? And what happened in the third one? And build out a sales methodology like that and then calling you know, people that purchased uh, Cloudinary, people that chose not to purchase Cloudinary and find out why they did and why they didn't and then start to map a buyer journey into uh, that sales process in order to build out you know what is still to this day like you know in, in my mind it's a pretty good sales process that we have here and of course it could be improved and we've tweaked it a little bit since we we've done that but in general like people are still buying it more or less the same way so you know kind of understanding who the team was giving them the love giving them the discipline that they need and just building out like a real process that can be repeatable with something that you know we didn't have and i probably spent the first you know nine to twelve months building all that out Okay, that was what I was going to ask as far as how long did that take. So when you 
when you guys are coming on board, I mean, to, to have a very small team and then hire a VP and hire a CRO, it sounds like the founders were just like, or leadership were just like, we're in, like, this is what we're doing. Like, we are making the investment to make this work. Yeah. Well, when I, when I joined Alex, and we still to this day, we, we have customers who are giving us you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or more on a credit card. Wow. And, and, you know, they just, they like getting points on their MX black card yeah. and uh, free, you know, free trips. There you go. Yeah. That, that's basically it. But it takes a long time with product led growth. Like the, the challenge there is it does take a long time to get to that point. And we saw like, okay, well, if it takes them five years to go from, you know, $5,000 a month to $50,000 a month, like, could we accelerate that and maybe make that happen in a year or two if we had a real sales organization behind it? So that was the, the thought process behind it. And that's why the leadership here was so in on let's build a real enterprise machine. How do you know, this is, this is one question that I've been getting quite a bit over the last few weeks is when you are PLG, product led mm -hmm. growth, and you are saying, Hey, you know what? It's time to turn, turn the engines on and let's get a sales team. Yeah. How do you know that it's right? So like when you're going through kind of your vetting process, sure. The company's making money. Uh, you know, the customers are growing, people are doing a lot of from a product led motion, but like, how did you know you weren't go coming into something that maybe you were too early or they weren't ready for actually sales? Just because I want a sales team doesn't necessarily mean I'm ready for it yeah. in that environment. You know, I mean, I think like as if you're looking for a new role, I think it's important to do the vetting and, you know, ask a lot of people a lot of the right questions there. And, and when I joined the company, I met with a CRO, I met with a CFO, I met with the CEO and, you know, kind of put them all through the ringer to see like, okay, like, are you guys really committed to this? Like, this is something you haven't done before. It's relatively new. Uh, it's a new muscle for you that you've got to go work out. And like, are you really committed to that? And, you know, and I, I felt very confident when I came in that everybody was like extremely committed to making sure. And, and it wasn't like, oh, it was only these three people. Like those were the three people that I inherited, by the way. Like yeah. there was another three people in EMEA. There was a team of maybe a dozen or so SDRs scattered around the world. We had a couple of SEs in the U.S., a couple of SEs in EMEA. So like there was a real sales organization there. It just didn't have any discipline or process behind it. That makes sense. So you come on and you spend the first nine to 12 months kind of get, getting aligned with everything. Where do you start really though? Do you start with the people? Do you start with digging into the product? Do you, I mean, trying to figure out like PQLs and PQAs and all that kind of stuff to figure out how to actually get like, where, where do you even try to start there? Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to start with people and that's, you know, the first thing that I always ask for is like, oh, let's, let's do a pipeline review. Because you'll, you'll very quickly understand like, okay, who's good and who's not just by looking at that. You know, if, if I'm looking at a pipeline and this person has 40 deals in it and they've only touched four of them in the last, you know, 30 days and they just keep kicking the close date out or like, you know, here we are in, in June and the close date is back in February and like none of that stuff has been updated. You can start to get a, like a really quick feel for like how disciplined people are and are they going to be good sellers for me or is this somebody that I... I'm very quickly going to have to take corrective action on, right? So, so I'll start with, with people and I'll start by just kind of looking at the deals that they did. I went on a ton of customer visits with people because I wanted to hear like, okay, what are customers saying? What do they want to buy? And like, how do they buy? So that we can start building out and making sure that we're incorporating how they want to buy into our overall sales process. 
and really tried to understand it from that level, much more so than like digging into the product to see if the product works. You know, it, it took me you know, a lot of time to like really figure out how the product works and how it can be used. But very quickly, as a result of listening to gong calls and meeting with customers, very quickly figured out what the value is that the product brings to them. And understanding that, you're able to kind of adjust the messaging a little bit and go, okay, like, you know, for, for Cloudinary, we, we save a ton of time by getting assets out faster. Uh, we save a ton of revenue by reducing the overall size of that. And so from an optimization standpoint, and we can increase conversion, so we drive a lot of revenue. And, you know, we start hitting on those three things in the sales pitch. All of a sudden, it makes a huge difference in, in close rate when you start bringing those, those three things up very early in the process. You're really getting hands-on pretty fast. Did yeah, you, you have to. Did, did you, like, how much did you get into, do they understand their customers? Do they understand process? Like, some of the foundational things that, that you and I talk about offline all the time yeah. around why some of these companies who are trying to scale struggle because they say they know their customers, but they don't actually. They they say they know how their buyers buy, but they don't actually. They're just shoving them through some sales process. Did, did you have to redo a lot of that or was it really kind of there and maybe you just kind of optimized it more? No, we, we went through an exercise where we locked ourselves in a conference room for a day, Alex, and rewrote the entire sales process out. And it was like, okay, you know, we're going to call this thing stage one, right? And what all has to happen inside of stage one? And like, how do we know, what are the exit criteria to go stage one to stage two? Okay, now we have stage two, like, what does that look like? And what happens there? And how do we get introduced to more people? And like, you know, are we allowed to kick it back? Or, you know, do we can we only go forward with it? So we really spent a lot of time diving deeply into how do we define and how do we create a sales process that truly aligns to how our buyers buy and how we want to get revenue done. And as a result, it also made revenue significantly more predictable. You have really good insights into what's happening. How so? You've been there years now. How many times uh, before, have you yeah, redone So, how many times have you relooked at that and iterated on it? Well, we we look at it all the time, right? It's it's one of those things. that's like it, it it's always a living living breathing thing, you know. And as you know, so for example, like COVID really changed the way that people buy software, right? And and probably buy everything. But you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about before we started recording, like. The whole idea of building rapport, like nobody cares, right? And and that became more abundant or more apparent rather when COVID hit and people were working from home and they just wanted to get get their yeah. stuff done, right? They had a problem. They don't care about your dog. They don't care about where you live. They don't care about what happened in the game last night. Like they have a problem. Help me fix it right now. Yeah. And I think that the sellers who really thrived were the ones that figured that out very quickly and the ones that, that really struggle are the ones who are still like having conversations about what happened in the game last night. Yeah. Do you think that there's still a place? I mean, I know we're going to go off top topic here a little bit, but like there's this whole relationship seller basis where it's like, Hey, we got to get on a golf course or we got to go no, to the dead. bar. You think it's dead? I think it's dead. I think it's, all the and, and honestly, like I was just out on the client site last week and, and invite like, I invited these guys to play golf and I, we don't want to go golf with you. Like we're not buddies. Like we like you, you're a nice guy, but like I'd rather hang out with my kid and like do stuff like that. than like, you know, go play golf with some sales guy that I barely know. 
Exactly. I'll go, I'll go golfing with you. Let's do it. I'm not All very right, good, but I, I like to drink beer and smoke cigars. So perfect. We're um, in. <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about, so you're, you come in, you have a couple of sellers, you're starting to do pipeline reviews. Do you, do you do pipeline reviews as a team or do you do them like one-to-one? -one? I do both. So I'll do, do I'll, I'll do a team high level pipeline review. Like, okay, here are the, like, so for example, like, you know, here we are at the end of the quarter. So I had my meeting yesterday, like, you know, what is happening with each of these deals that are coming in? And then during a one-on-one, -on -one, I'll do a deeper dive into each individual deal and we'll start to go, okay, like, where do we need help? What do we have to do here in order to get this thing in? What are the roadblocks that you have? What are the other resources that we have in the company that you could leverage on this? I think that, you know, a, a lot of salespeople, we all have huge egos and a lot of us all think that we can do it on our own. And, you know, the most successful salespeople that I've seen figure out how to leverage their both internal and external resources really, really well. So part of the coaching that I'm giving is like, okay, like we have this deal, who else do we have to bring in? And, and we're a, a global organization. We're technically headquartered in Santa Clara. Most of our devs and, and product team are in Tel Aviv. Most of our biz ops people are all in London. So, you know, just being able to kind of herd all those cats together in order to help progress something is part of like the, the value that I bring in talking about these things on a deal by deal basis. I'm curious because I actually I've had to deal with this a couple of times over the last few weeks is experienced sellers. So yeah. they're working with experienced sellers and they have their 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 way and they have their style. And some of the experienced sellers have a tendency to rush through the process. So they rush through it and say, well, if the buyer is willing to go this fast, or I guess the potential buyer is willing to say, yes, I'm willing to do the demo. Yes, send over pricing. Yes, 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 yes. It's almost like, you know, a sales cycle is nine months, but somehow we did it in two weeks or two months. And you're like, wait a minute, this is really fast. Have you had to deal with coaching experienced sellers to change the way that they do things and maybe change some some bad habits or things like that i guess in your analogy did they get the deal done in two weeks or no did they get to it, the end they thought they were at the stalled. end in two weeks and the whole thing blew up well it's, it's stuck it's stuck yeah really. I, I mean you know that that's like the classic like nine women can't give birth to a baby in one month kind of thing like you know <laughs> i haven't heard that, that one that's good there is you know, the reason that there is a process there is because, you know, in, in theory, that process has been proven. Now, you know, it, it's hard to like show like everything takes 90 days. Like, but, you know, after you do 100 or so deals, you start to see an average that yeah. balances out there. And I think that if you have a seller that's like trying to jam stuff in in two weeks, you're going to like probably the coaching that I would give that person is like, look, you're going to blow through two weeks over and over and over again. Like th th this is you have to slow down to speed up in this regard, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the goal is to reach the finish line. It's like, this is a marathon. It's not who can run the fastest hundred meter dash in the marathon. It's you have to get to the end of that 26 miles. So I, the, the coaching that I would give to somebody like that is like, think about it more as a marathon. Like you don't like, there's no award for, you know, I got it stuck after two weeks. Like, you know, we used to have like the goofy awards and we had like the empty wallet award for the person with the biggest pipeline. And we had like a floppy disk for the person that wouldn't use Salesforce. Yeah. Like 
kind of like fun but shaming awards that we would give out at SKO. And, and similarly, like if you've got somebody that's like always like trying to jam this, you know, nine month process into 30 days, like you've got to just coach them and say like, look, like we got to make you into a long distance runner. Or you take that person and go like, let's put you onto something that's a little bit more transactional, right? And maybe that's a better model for that person is that more transactional sale because they like that, you know, ringing the bell every two weeks or so and, and getting that going. And some people just don't have the, the stomach or the, the patience to deal with a nine-month sales cycle. And maybe they only do one or two deals a year, but they're big, massive, gnarly deals. You know, that's a different mentality than the person that's like, I need to close 100 deals a year, and we've got to get them done once a week, and we're just like yeah. cranking them out. So when you think about these experienced sellers, because I, I feel like a, a lot of startups – tend to say, hey, we want to bring in people who are experienced sellers, they've been selling for a long time, maybe even bring in the the Rolodex type network to, to be able to hit the ground running. Yeah. But oftentimes they come with some bad habits, or maybe they come from a big company, and maybe they're not the right fit for a startup, and they don't know how to actually work inside of a, a startup environment. Have you ever had to deal with that? I mean, I know a lot of yeah. the people that you're with at Cloudinary, a lot of them have worked for you in the past. And so you, you know them coming in, but like not, not everybody has, but like, how do you, how do you kind of coach that? And in, in from a, like a leadership perspective, because that is, that is tough. It's, it's so hard. And I think that, uh, I had this person that worked for me. I was at a small startup, brought this guy in real seasoned dude from Salesforce and like right out of the gate, like I knew it wasn't going to work because a company like Salesforce just has resources that a small company doesn't have. Like, you know, people I know that work at Salesforce have like a person that builds their PowerPoints for them. Like, that's just like a luxury that I've never even heard of. But yeah, like, maybe I need oh, to go I, to I need a, I'm doing a presentation. I need a deck and they send it down the hallway. And two days later, a beautiful, shiny deck comes out. Like wow. most small companies don't have that level of resource. So you have to be like really considerate and understand like, you know, and again, like if it's a really small company, like is the person willing to do lots of different roles? Like you're not just in sales, but you know, you're probably in implementation and you're probably in, you know, you're in customer success and you're in, you know, developer and you're a QA or all at the same time. Like if it's really early on. And as far as like the Rolodex goes, like, I feel like that again, you know, that sort of died out with the Mad Men days. Like, you know, okay, let's, let's, let's just say hypothetically, like I know the CEO of Ford, right. And, you know, great. I know the CEO of Ford, but if I called up the CEO of Ford and I was like, Hey, I got some Cloudinary now. And like, would you like to buy some? The CEO of Ford is going to say like, well, okay, go talk to Barbara down the hallway. And, you know, I'm going to say, Hey, Barbara, I'm Cloudinary and I'm friends with the CEO and told me to call you. And Barbara's going to be like, I don't have a project for this. Like, it's interesting. It's cool. Keep me posted. Send me some emails. But like, People just, they have 19 things on their plate right now. And, you know, I get phone calls from people that I know all the time, like you and I are in the, the Techstars network. Like, I, I introduce them, but like, if they don't have, like, if we don't have a project that their product can fix, like, it's not just going to, like, materialize because I'm friends with the guy. Yeah. Hard to create random projects out of thin air. Yeah. You have to be a lot more compelling than I am. <laughs> I think better than I am as well. So let's 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 dig into this a little bit. So when you're you're at Cloudinary, you start to figure a lot of these things out, and you're starting to create essentially a go-to-market sales motion. Yeah. 
what 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 do you look for in the way that the strategy like how do you start to build out the strategy how do you start to put together the team how do you start to gain some traction so i think like the way that that we think about it and and again cloudinary is a little bit different than like your traditional venture funded company like we're we're not in this position where you know let's go hire you know now that we've got it figured out let's go hire 50 sellers like that's not the goal of ours. The goal of ours is to like, you know, we're a $150 million company with 400-ish or so people. Like, so we're, we're an extremely efficient organization that runs pretty lean compared to like other similarly sized organizations. So when we kind of figured it out, then it was like, okay, and we had enough opportunities. Like the thing that I always look for, Alex, is do I have enough opportunities to feed my existing team? Right. And that's well, that's how I'm thinking about it now. Do I have enough opportunities to feed my existing team? If I do and are they at capacity, then I'll add more people to the mix. If I don't, then I need to figure out how do I optimize my team to make sure that they are all ridiculously successful. So that way, you know, I can increase their close rate from, you know, 25 to 30 percent. Well, if I can do that, then I can hire another person. And if I can't do that, then we're at least still making our number. And I'm making my number with five or seven or 10 people, not with 30 people, right? There's a, there's a different school of thought that I think a lot of organizations are, you know, paying for over the last six months. And that is, Hey, you know what? Maybe if I have a, if I have a $6 million number, rather than hiring six people and giving them a million dollar quota, I'll hire 15 people and give them a million dollar quota, knowing that you know, most of them are going to come in at 40% of their number. I'll still make my $6 million number. I'm going to have a bunch of salespeople who are pissed off, but at least I've made the number, right? Like at the end of the day, like that's a, you know, that might not be the best use of capital, but it's a good way to spend money in order to guarantee that you make the number. It's a, it's a strategy that unfortunately is used quite, quite frequently, but is, yeah. I don't know how much is going to change. I think some people are going to kind of eat their words for a minute and have to deal with it. But I'm wondering once we kind of get out of what we're in right now, economic wise, if it goes back to that way or, or, or stays in this kind of profitability, like optimization mode. That's interesting. Yeah. So when, when you think about it, so let's kind of dig into each way. So if you don't have enough leads and you're, and you're focused on optimization, is it you working with marketing or, or is it you having your, your team go outbound and then are they trying to essentially drive developers to use the product from like a product-led motion? Is it going out saying, hey, you're an ideal customer profile organization, you developers should try the product, we're going to obviously watch what you're doing in the trial or freemium, whatever you want to do in order to be able to get some insights and then coach you through the process to get more value? Or are you saying, hey, now we have a sales team. We know these ICPs are a good fit. They've never interacted with us. We're just going to go do more of a traditional sale, like outbound, set up a meeting, set up a demo, so on and so forth. Yeah, we, we, love, we love developers, but the developers generally don't have a lot of purchasing authority. So it's much more of the latter. Right, where we will go to a CTO, a head of digital, a head of media at these organizations and take a more traditional, like, let's roll up our sleeves and go start running some programs there. And of course, we use technology like Sixth Sense to identify like who's the, you know, who has a higher propensity to buy. 
So we'll start to, you know, now that we have that layered in there, that kind of changes, like, you know, if, if I'm looking at, I don't know, I'll use Coach and Ford, right? If Ford has never come to our website, has never expressed any interest at all, like, yeah, they're a big, sexy brand, but like, I'm not going to spin my cycles calling on them when I've got Coach over here, also kind of a sexy brand, just not as big as Ford, but certainly like has interest and has shown, you know, kind of that they're interested in Cloudinary, they're coming to the website, they're downloading papers, they're visiting our competitors, all of that makes such a huge difference in the way that we go about prospecting. So that's been a really helpful tool in order to do that as a way that's to awesome. eliminate the delta that we have between like, okay, I know I need X number of opportunities going into every month. You know, how are we tracking on that? Oh, we're low on it. Like, okay, is there a trade show that we can go do real fast? Is there some campaigns that we can go run as a sales organization? Could we do something with a partner to, to in order to fix that delta? I love it. So you're really, really using data, whether it's on the website, in the product, however you need to, in order to get the sales intel to improve your prospecting, improve your qualification and everything. Like it's not yeah. just, hey, they meet these three criteria. Let's go get them. Yeah. And, and like and, and that date, that data is so critical. Like we as, as a PLG company, like we do have a free trial. People can go sign up for Cloudinary anytime they want. And we will get com people who sign up from large organizations. We had, you know, I won't say the name of the company, but we had a huge Fortune 100 company sign up just this morning, call the guy up. He's like, yeah, I just happened to use my work email. I'm just kind of doing something for, for, for fun as a hobby. Nothing related to my company at all. Okay, cool. Like, you know, we probably could have spent a little bit of time like doing some more research on that and going like, oh, you know what? Nobody from this company has ever expressed any interest at all. We just have this one dude, kind of a low-level developer. Like, there's probably not anything going on there. Yeah. So e even if people are downloading free trials like crazy, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a interest from a corporate level. It means that there's an interest from that individual level that may or may not turn into the corporate level interest. So that's really interesting because really one of the big things in any kind of PLG sales motion is so much around prioritization. Like, who are you going to reach out to? Who are you spending your time on? What are you going to say to them? Like, what what can you say versus, hey, I'm a sales guy from Cloudinary. Like, I'd love to chat with you and sell you some stuff. So much of it is being able to use the data that you have available in order to, in order to make the conversation actually valuable. Talk, talk a little bit about, like, what is it that you use from, like, a systems point of view or maybe a cadence to talking with your team as far as how to actually identify who to reach out to and who not to reach out to. Mm. So I think that the, the who to reach out to is probably easier. Well, maybe it's not, maybe the who not to reach out to. I think one of the things that's really tricky about our business is that some analysis I did about six months ago was what are the titles of the people who are our champion at our you know, top 25 largest customers? And Alex, they have nothing to do with anything. Like I would never call any of these people up because their titles are like, so they're like website administrator. And like, I'm like, how did a website administrator sign off on like this multi-million dollar project? And sure enough, like this person just like, that's their job is to like figure out how to make the website run faster and be more effective for their developers. But they all have these titles that you wouldn't normally search for in LinkedIn or Zoom Info or whatever tool that you're using. 
So you have to do like a little bit more fishing into like, okay, well, who's in charge of this? And you just have to like scratch and sniff a ton when you go into these accounts and really figure out like, okay, like this is kind of who we normally sell to. Is this you? Oh no, that's Bob. Bob works over in this department. Okay. Hey Bob, are you the right guy for this? Yeah, I kind of am, but it's really, you know, Jenny who works down the hall for me. Oh, okay. Like then you're like, you're nav you're trying to navigate these organizations. And because it's PLG, like maybe we have like a little bit of like a friendly person that we can talk to in terms of the developer that maybe downloaded it. But oftentimes we're just like calling into an account. It's just like, you know, kind of that brute force strength to get into some of these things to find that person. Because again, like their titles are just so oh, random, right? It's not no, like, oh, hey, go call the CTOs, right? If I, it was just like call CTOs, life would be so much easier. <laughs> Well, I think it's an interesting point because there's a lot. I mean, PLG is very popular now. I think a lot of people are trying to use it. But I think the point is, is the people who are signing up are your users. They might be a low level or, you know, mid level, yeah. but they have nothing to do with the decision makers. A lot of the decision makers have maybe no idea that it, that they're signing up for this. And so it's not just, hey, I got a customer who signed up for a free trial and now I'm just going to convert them. It's the, the users and then the buyers and then the 50 other people that might be involved. And a lot of it is just like a hunt to figure out like, how do you actually map this all together? That's what you're paying the salesperson to do. Yeah. And it's actually a challenge that we ran into maybe 18 months or so ago. We had, uh, we started to, to sell this a lot and the end user developer wasn't involved. Like we were as a sales organization, like we were a little bit afraid of having that person come in because, you know, they're the smart ones in the room. Like we don't want that. Like we can convince other people not to, <laughs> not, you know, to, to do this. But like what happens then, like, and, and this is like a warning for anybody who's doing PLG is like when you go and you sell to an executive who can make a decision on this and then they, you know, give the developer, they give that end user, hey, look, like we've made this decision. You're going to use this tool now. Like, it better be a tool that that person likes because like, if you don't, you're, they're going to have a mutiny on their hands and they're going to churn because they're going to call you a year later and they're going to say, hey, you know what, like the team really hated using this and you know, we tried, we gave the old college try, but you're never going to get that traction. So it's so important that you know, you're not just selling at that high level. You do have to embrace that end user and bring them into the conversation. And I think if the sooner you bring them into the conversation, the better off you're going to be, providing you have confidence in your, in your product. And you know, thankfully at Cloudinary, we do. Yeah. So you started, you start doing, you, you come on board, you start making these changes, you run these exercises and things start to work and work and work and work. What are, what are the KPIs, milestones, metrics? Like what is it that you looked for that was able to help you kind of define that it was starting to work in order to be able to kind of double down in those areas? Yeah. So I look at things like average deal size. So when I joined, I think our average deal size was about 30 grand a year. So not a very, and, and I hate that because that, to me, like anything, when you have an enterprise salesperson working on something that's kind of under $100,000 in ARR, like you're in this like death zone in SaaS where like it's going to be low ARR, low margin. The sellers are going to have to do 50 deals a year in order to make a million dollars. Like it's so difficult in that, in that spot there. So one of the things that we really focused on was like, how do we drive our average ARR up, right? And, and what I found was that in a lot of cases, and, and this is still to, to this day, we just had to ask for more money. And, and it wasn't like, you know, 
we, we had a we had a price list that the company put out. We looked at the price list, went like, okay, like your price is this, and customers went great. Here's a contract. And what we found is like if we just took that price list and we doubled it, people still said yes, and we, you know we were able to increase our our average deal size. And then when we doubled that, people went like, ah, it's a little bit much for me. I, I don't know about that. So you start to find out like where that value point is, where people who are willing to pay for a number based on the value that they're getting. So then that brings in kind of the second point, and that is, all right, let's go sell value here. Like we've been selling this product on the technical merits of it, but not necessarily on the value merits of it, right? And, and like I said earlier, like the, the value merits are, it's, you know, it's time savings, it's cost savings, and it's revenue driver. Like those are the three things, and, and they're, they're three pretty good things to bring into a sales pitch. Now, when you start talking about those three things, now all of a sudden like you can increase your ASP pretty significantly because you're going to tie the value that they're that they anticipate getting out of this into your ASP there. Like that became like a huge win for us just by, you know, starting to ask for more money, then getting more confident with the value pitch. That those two things really made a big difference in terms of of driving revenue up. The other metrics we looked at was just like how long does it take? Like how much time is there between you know between touches? Right. Like, you know, I, I get you know, one of my pet peeves is like if I'm listening to a call and they get to the end of it and they're like, well, hey, what should our next steps be? And they're like, I don't know. I'll call you in a couple of weeks. And like, we'll we'll talk then. Oh, man, like it just makes me want to throttle somebody. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, we, we got really disciplined about like, you know what, even if they say, hey, you're going to call me in two weeks, it's like just put it on the calendar, like make sure like we're diligent about making sure that there is a clear next step. And even if it's just like a five minute phone call to say, hey, Alex, like. I know you had a meeting. How did it go? Do you still want to talk to us again or not? Powerful. And be very black and white about it instead of just letting things kind of hang out. Yeah. No, I, I really like your point around increasing your price. I mean, that's one of the it's it's funny, we're we're similar in that way where I never I never want to start with this really, really massive price because it's, you know, hey, if we if we can sell for this much, like we're all gonna be billionaires. Yeah. You have no idea if they say no, do they say no to the price or do they say no to the value? But if you start small and they say yes, and then you go up a little bit more and they still say yes, and you just kind of keep going up until you figure out where the friction is until your point where they're like, Neh. well, that's that like eh, weird sign. That's yeah. you found it. Like that's, that's the, the price. Friction. Yeah. Yeah. So you figured it out. So that's really interesting. And then one of the big things I love to use is is perception of pricing to value. And so when you look at it, if, if you were going to buy a, a Ferrari and I said, oh, it's a thousand dollars, you would have said like, wait, what's the catch? Right. Because there's inherent value in the way that they price it. So if you're going to yes. price it at $25 or $30,000 and it's supposed to do all of these amazing things that's going to revolutionize their business and and help them save or make millions and millions of dollars and you're only charging me 30 grand, what's the catch? Oh yeah, this nobody buys it. No, it's right? weird. So I'm, if all of a sudden I'm... you quadruple the price and all of a sudden it flies off the shelf, you're like, "Oh, perception of pricing to yeah. value." Totally. Uh, I'm I'm very anti, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm very anti ROI calculator for that reason. Yeah. Right. Because everybody's ROI calculator shows you're going to make tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> oh, it's only going to cost you 50 grand, Alex. But here, like, look at all this ROI. Like, if, yeah. if they were, I feel like if they work, like selling would be the easiest job in the world. Yeah. My, my favorite is the case study. I mean, I've been dealing with case studies a lot lately. And I, I, I ask all, all the different founders or salespeople that, I, that keep asking me, like, hey, what, what does the case study say? And I go, When's the last time that you looked at a case study and said, 
you know what? Now I'm going to buy this. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> Thank you very much for this piece of paper that is totally 100% made up. Now I'm going to buy it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. Get the damn case studies. <laughs> yeah. Funny stuff. Yeah. All right. So you have starting, you're starting to get some traction. Things are starting to work really well. This is not a VC backed place. So you, this is not just, hey, let's dump millions and millions of dollars wherever you want, hire millions of people. I like to use the term pouring gas in the fire to say, hey, you know, it's working. You don't necessarily just pour gas, but like, how do you, what do you do when you're like really investing yeah. into doubling down? Like, how does, how does that look for you? Well, I think that, you know, for me here, what I want to do is I really want to figure out how to like maximize output with minimal resources, right? So, you know, let, let, let's just say like my number for the year is $10 million, right? If I could have like one salesperson that goes out and can figure out how to close a $10 million deal, boom, I'm done. I'm, I'm thrilled. I've, I've made my number with one person in one deal and I can take the rest of the year off. You know, and, and from that, then maybe you start to add gasoline to that in, in your example. But like, that's not quite realistic. So what, what I've been focused on, and, and this is something that you and I've talked about, is like, how do you get the most out of your reps, right? And, and I'll, you know, I know next to nothing about sports, Alex, but like, I'll give you a basketball analogy. Like, I live here in the Bay Area, and if the Warriors are down by two points with two seconds left to go in the game, like 100% of the time, if he's in the game, that ball is going to Steph Curry. Because he's going to make the three, whatever his percentage is, his you know, percentage of making threes is outrageous. So he's going to make the three all the time. Like, so I don't understand why sales leaders don't do that with their salespeople, right? A lead comes in and it's like, oh, like this is a great lead. I should give it to this person because this person has the best chance of closing it. Oh, but it's in Chicago. I got to give it to this person because this person's in the Chicago territory. So one of the things that I've been working on for the past, I don't know, maybe six months or so is really looking at the opportunities when they come in, whether they get generated by an SDR, whether they come in from a partner or from a marketing campaign and looking at that and going like, okay, like based on the criteria of this, like who's the buyer, what's the size of the company, what is the use case that they have, like all of these different factors. And then I can go like, okay, like this person on my team has the highest chance of closing this. I'm going to give that lead to this person. And, you know, we, we jokingly refer to me internally as lead God, but what I'm allowed to do is just make that decision and go, hey, you know what? Like, I think that Cindy is the best person on my team to close this deal. I'm giving the lead to her. And I, I know that she lives in L.A., but like, and I don't care that it's in New York. Like, it's going to her because she's going to get it done. And, and I think as sales leaders, if we start thinking about and operating in a model that is more set up to make the individuals more successful, you'll see that lift all of the people on the team and everybody will be successful and you won't need to have 15 people in my example that we used earlier. You can get away with doing that, you know, 10 or 15, you know, that $6 million with six people or five people. So I 100% agree with you. And there is one really, really challenging piece of this. How do you get everybody to buy into that? Cause I can see that that happening yeah. and the person in New York being like, that sucks, man. This is bullshit. This that's my deal. That's my territory. Yeah. Like how how do you how do you get I mean, I know that you have you have a, a, a team of people who there's a lot of trust. You've yeah. worked with many of them before. Like you have a really, really strong team. We've talked about this many times. How how do you be how do you, yeah. how do you focus on actually like creating that environment, that culture that they go, I get it. 
You know, I, I, I think, first of all, I believe that the universe balances itself out, right? And so Monday, that guy in New York is going to be really pissed. But on Tuesday, when the lead from Chicago comes in and we give it to the guy in New York because that person's the best to close it, all of a sudden he's going to be like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm going to go see every Cubs game and this will be great. Like, I get to go to Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Like, it seems to balance out. And, and what we're seeing is that, you know, it, it, as long as you don't just go like, okay, like, Cindy has the highest close rate on the team, so everything is going to go to her. You know, as, as long as you don't do that and you're fair and have a method to the madness and you can explain it and go, okay, I gave this to Cindy because of X, Y, and Z criteria. I gave this to, you know, John in New York because of ABC criteria. As long as you can explain that, people are pretty chill about it. It's powerful. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about hiring. Because yeah. you are you are a huge people person. I know you're big on culture. I know you're bi- big on on hiring good people who are ethical and honest. And I know you have a no asshole rule, except you get to talk to me, so maybe you break it for an hour. But <laughs> like, help me understand a little bit. Like, how do you think about hiring? Maybe walk through some examples of your team. Like, how do you make sure you get the right people, you know, on, onto the bus? Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in my career, like really wanting to make myself better. So I've looked at like all the best salespeople that I've ever worked with and tried to figure out like, what do they do so much better than other people? And, and I've kind of categorized it down into like six different things and I can walk you through those. Yeah. The first is just this relentless focus on moving a deal forward, right? They, they ne- like we talked about earlier, Alex, like they never get to the end of a call and be like, well, I don't know what our next step should be. Like, why don't, why don't we talk in like a couple of weeks after you've had a chance to digest it? Like, they're so on, like, they start a meeting out saying, hey, Alex, great to meet with you. By the way, like, if you like this at the end of the meeting, like, I'm going to ask for three next steps, one, two, and three. This is what they are. We're going to put them on the calendar. Boom, 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 boom. They're going to be one week after the other, if that's okay with you, and tell me, like, what your schedule looks like. Constantly think about how to move that deal forward. Love that. That's awesome. This, the second thing is that they are consistently thinking about their client success and not just their success with Cloudinary or with whatever product that you're trying to sell is, they really have a vested interest in seeing that human being be successful. I know people that will send a text message to their prospect, to their client at you know 10 o'clock at night. Hey, I just read this article. I thought it could really help impact some other project that you're working on. They, they ask questions like, what other projects are you working on? Like, where does this stack rank amongst the things that you have in your pipeline and help me understand that. And, and can I help you on these other things? I've been selling software for two decades now. Like I know a lot of people, maybe I can help you with some of these things that you're working on. So they're, they're kind of constantly thinking about that. They navigate an organization better than anybody else out there and they don't get single threaded in a deal. Jordan Schultz, who worked on my team at Dynamic Signal, he probably had 500 people at IBM that he would stay in touch with. Like, but he was getting a couple of million dollars a year in revenue from IBM. Like it got to the point, the joke was that if, if people heard rumors around IBM, they would call Jordan to find out if that really was the case. Like he wow. had so many connections there and he did a great job kind of didn't just even building work relationships and managing <laughs> relationships. It was, it was bananas. He didn't but even he work there. That's threaded because you know, we've all had that deal where we're working with our champion and the champion, you know, gets hit by a bus or gets, you know, kind of gets fired or whatever. And your deal goes sideways. And now it's like, well, I don't know who to call because I was always talking to, you know, this guy over here. 
they prepare like crazy, and this is probably the biggest and most important one to me. Like every phone call, they will have a list of like, here's the questions. And the best salespeople that I've seen will create a matrix of like, okay, I'm going to ask this question. Okay, if they answer it this way, here's my response. If they answer it this way, here's my response. And you know, when I go into big meetings, like we'll role play the whole meeting. And it's like, okay, I'm going to ask this question. Well, if they answer it this way, then what do we want to ask about? And we have it so, it's, it's like a choreography almost. Like when you go into the meeting, it's so prepared. The fifth one is, is they're not afraid to ask hard questions. So when I'm interviewing people, like I want to see like what kind of questions do they ask me and are they really difficult questions? And do they do it in a, in a tactful way? One of the, the people that works for me here at Cloudinary, Sean can ask questions. It's kind of his superpower. Like he asks these really difficult questions but he asks them in such a nice, kind, jovial way that people are like, oh, yeah, we plan on signing a contract on this day, and $300,000 is no big deal. Yeah, thanks for asking. Like, That's amazing. He does such a good job of it. a master class or something about oh, it. Oh, man, yeah, it, it would be amazing. Like, he's really, really good. Like, I can ask hard questions, but I'm kind of a bull in a china shop when I do. Yeah. Like, the people who are really good at it, they're not afraid, and they get these, like, they, they're just so powerful. And then the last one, I think, is like they just use resources well, right? They, they know, you know, again, they know that it's not a team sport or they know that it is a team sport. And like, let's go get a product person involved. Let's go get my executives involved. Let's go get this person or that person. Like, let's bring all these people in to help me get this deal done. And, and I think that like, that's a long laundry list. But like the top, like, you know, if I think about like the top five best SaaS salespeople I've ever worked with, people who are making you know, more than a million dollars a year consistently, year over year over year. Like they have those five or six criteria and they just do them so well. When So when you're going through these, I mean, for example, not afraid to ask hard questions and you're in, in, you're in an interview and they ask some difficult questions. I, I get that one. When some of these are, are kind of challenging in order to uncover during any type of an interview, how how long is your interview process to make sure that you flush out fit and if they're going to be a right person? Because you're going to invest a lot of your own time, obviously the company's yeah. resources. I mean, salespeople are well, notorious at making themselves sound really, really good. And you and I yeah. both know that, and that's one of our strengths, is we can sniff out a lot of the bullshit. But when you go from like really good seller to like really, really, really good seller, sometimes it's even harder to sniff out that BS how, how how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I think that like, like like let's just kind of we can go down them like uses resources well, right? Like, you know, I, did the person do any back channeling at all? Like, did they do back channeling on the company? Did they do back channeling on me? Do they know anything about me? How did they find that out? What did they do there? Prepared like crazy. Like one one of the first questions that I ask in an interview is like, what did you do to prepare for this? Because uh, I want to see, like, did you just show up and take a phone call or did you like, well, I looked at your LinkedIn and I read the website. Well, OK, like that's not great, but that's better than nothing. Like, you know, what I'm looking for is like, oh, well, I downloaded the, I, you know, what I did was I, I signed up for a free trial and I went through that process. I found out that my cousin uses your product. So I talked to him about it. And that was really interesting because I learned about it there. And, you know, that kind of thing. You know, kind of the navigating an organization, the way that I find out about that, and this is a, a trick that I learned from my boss here is, tell me about the deal that you worked on in your career that you're most proud of. And, and go into all of the detail on it. Like we'll spend a half an hour, 40 minutes talking about that deal. Cause like, you know, you've done enough deals, Alex, like 
the deals that you worked on 10 or 15 years ago that were meaningful in your life, like remember you still remember detail. every single detail. Like Jeff Collins, mm -hmm. who I worked with 25 years ago when he was at WorldCom, like that company hasn't been around for 20 years. Like <laughs> I remember, I remember Jeff, I remember what he ordered for lunch. I remember how he dressed. I remember his like kind of mullet that he had, like his big glasses. Like he was like, a, I remember like the contract. I remember his assistant's name. Like I haven't talked to the guy in 25 years, but like it was, a, those were meaningful deals in my career. And you just remember all the details about that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, that's powerful. The thinking about client success, like, do I get a, a text message from the, the candidate at some point saying like, oh, hey, maybe this will help you out. And then like the relentless focus, like I don't want to propose any kind of next step. Like I want to see if they do it. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I, I like to do that, too. I mean, I, I always look to see if they respond afterwards. Like if mm -hmm. I mean, that is like a kind of a must have. Like if yeah. I don't say anything like. If, if you're going to do that to your interviewer about your own job, you're certainly not going to do it to a, you know, a prospect that you're, that you're trying to sell. I mean, come on. You yeah. want the job or do you want the deal? You always want the job first. So. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Hey, we're at the end of our time. I got to go. I'll, I'll catch you later. Is this right? Yeah. There's the exit. Yeah. I want to see like, do they stop me? And are like, Hey, what should we do here? Like, and do they follow up? Like, is there a good thank you letter? Like, are they on time? Right. Like, you know, just kind of like the little things like Those you can start things. to, you can start to ferret it out. Yeah, it probably like, to your question, it probably takes two or three hours at least. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's kind of I, I think at a minimum. I mean, I look at it and go, you're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into this person. All the hours that you're going to spend talking to them, working with them, teaching them, training them. You want to be able to figure it out. Like I, yeah. I, I get the I get these scenarios from from and questions from founders and sales leaders about you know, I need you to speak to them for an hour. And then they'll be like, well, what, what do you think? And I go, well, I need at least another hour. They're like, well, what do you think so far? I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you because I know you're going to take whatever I say and run with it. And I have not yeah. made my decision yet because I've been talking to them for 60 minutes. You want me to make a 200K bet on 60 minutes? No, not going to be. Yeah. There. It's so hard. And then like, you know, I, I, I do think like getting somebody to walk you through a deal that they've done in intimate detail like, cause I've had people I've asked that question and they're like, well, I did a deal with Samsung. Oh, great. Well, why don't you tell me about it? Who did, who did you sell to? Oh, I, I think that the person's name was Peter, but I, uh, I can't remember the person's last. I'm like, all right, that you're out. Like, yeah, uh, that you don't know what you're talking about. One of the biggest things I look for is, is I don't even necessarily care what it is, but I want to hear the, the details. Like, can you tell me? Yeah. All the details through it. Like how process driven are you really? Because if it's like, I did it with Samsung. I, it was the CTO. I, I emailed and cold called him. He hopped on the phone. He said he loved it. And then like a couple months later, we were already in like technical evaluation and then diligence. And then they bought. And I was like, I didn't learn a damn thing from you. So thank you very much. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> or they like methodically go, this is what I did. This, like, can you articulate how you are selling or did you just kind of get lucky with a couple of deals? Yeah. And we all get lucky with some deals. Those are the best. Those are the best. <laughs> Those really are the best. I want to, I want to talk. I know we got uh, a few more minutes. I want to talk one big thing around some of the mistakes, some of the missteps that you've made with your team. You got a couple minutes to yeah. stick around if we Absolutely. go a little over yeah. now. Okay. So I want to dive in a little bit because one of the best parts about what I get to do is we get to talk about all the shit that you should have done, could have done, figured out that you did wrong, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, is there is there something that you kind of latch on to from your previous experience 
or things that you're doing now that you've learned that you're like, I'm not going to make that same mistake. If I had to do it again, I wouldn't do it again, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think like the one, the one I took advantage of and it was good for me personally was expanding into Europe because I got to go live in London for three years and that was great. But like, you know, at, at the time the company was probably doing, I mean, if we were doing a quarter million dollars dripping wet, Alex, in the whole continent of, of Europe, it would be amazing. We just felt like at the time, like, hey, we need to go expand into Europe and establish a, a beachhead there. And, you know, like I said, it was great for me and my family to go live in London, but it wasn't the best corporate decision. And, and I've made that mistake now uh, twice because I kind of made the same mistake at Dynamic Signal where we said, OK, like, let's go into Europe and, and put a team there when we were doing, I don't know, we probably weren't even doing a million dollars in Europe at the time with, with Dynamic Signal. Like, I, I sort of feel like if you want to start expanding outside of your home region, make sure you're doing, you know, five to ten million dollars a year in ARR. I know some companies kind of believe that it should be closer to 50 million before you start opening up offices and hiring people there. That feels a little rich to me, but like you want to have some kind of, it's, it's so different and so difficult and so expensive to spin those things up. And, you know, you have to make sure that you've really got it nailed before you go do that. Yeah. So that would be one, but that's, that's fairly, that's fairly tactical. I think that the other one is like, I've just tried to scale sales teams too fast and maybe that was ego getting in the way or maybe that was like board pressure getting in the way to like go scale these things but you you don't I, I think that it's and, and maybe my bias is now like this profitability bias that I have at, at Cloudinary you know the idea of like going out and hiring 50 salespeople to make a 10 million dollar number it just seems like such a waste of money to me now like there's so many other things that I could do with that money to 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 generate that but you know that's what a lot of companies have done over the past few years and it, it's sort of the sales equivalent of like can i get a million monkeys to write the works of shakespeare if you give them enough time and enough typewriters maybe they'll do it but you'll have you know to amy volis's point the other day like you'll have 40 you percent know, of your team maybe making the number and 60 percent of them are going to be miserable so i'm not crazy about the idea of of adding more salespeople when you don't have the when you don't have the ability to feed them. Like what I don't want to have, and, I'm, and something I'm really proud of in my career is I've got less than 5% uh, 5% uh, people leaving. I'm trying to, I'm brain farting what the word is. Regrettable churn yeah. is the word that I was looking for there. And, and I think part of that is because like I try to think about like, okay, how do I make these people successful? And you don't make these, you don't make individuals successful by, you know, setting them up into a position where they're going to be at 25 or 30 percent of the number like i'll maybe make myself successful but i feel like that's a short-term win but a, a massive long-term loss yep yeah i see it a lot people are like let's just hire a bunch of people make sure we hit our number and i'm like you're just it's such a company kind of almost selfish way to think about it where yeah. you don't care about the people you know you say you care you say you oh, want this great culture. Yeah, you don't care. And then if they all quit because they all didn't make any money, but you made yeah. money, that's not great. No. Yeah. And then you then it becomes like this boiler room culture where, you know, because you, you can't keep people around if they're, I mean, you can kind of keep people around if they're not making their number because, like, you, you know you've given them a million-dollar quota, but you know they're only going to deliver 300000 so you've modeled it that way. But that's kind of a terrible existence for everybody. Yeah. I don't want to be in that right. environment. I don't want to be no. the leader. I certainly don't want to be the leader knowing full well that it's just like you don't, you're not transparent enough. 
Right. You're not going to be successful. This is awesome. I feel like we could actually talk for uh, a few more hours. I know we already have. Uh, we'll, we'll, and, we'll do it again, I hope. I've, we'll, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I want to, I like always to wrap up in the same way with, with all the guests. Do you have a favorite book or a favorite resource that you recommend to either founders or sales leaders, go to market experts? Like, what do you recommend to, to kind of enhance your skills? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this and it's probably not appropriate with the whole submarine implosion, but there's a book that came out and it got recommended to me by another salesperson called Shadow Divers. And it's a true story. The book came out, I don't know, maybe 15 or 18 years ago. True story about a group of guys who are deep sea divers that find a German submarine sunk 60 miles off the coast of New Jersey. And nobody ever knew that during World War II that the Germans got so close to the U.S. coastline. So these guys find this thing and there's literally no record of it. But the reason that it's related to sales and to business is you know, these guys go down for maybe like a 30 or 40 minute dive, but they'll spend months preparing for it. And I tend to analogize it to a sales meeting, right? Like, yeah, I've got 60 meetings in front of a client, but for those 60 meetings, I might prep for 30 hours, right? It kind of goes back to the old, I think it was Chris Rock that said, I, I prepare for one hour for every minute that I'm on stage. And, and while I'm not quite that diligent, I do probably prepare at least, you know, probably one hour for every five minutes that we're presenting because they really want it to be buttoned up and polished when we go into that room and you only get one shot at it. So I like that book in regards to just how they thought about prep and the diligence that goes into the preparation. And I think that that's something that any executive or sales leader can, can, can use because I, I do feel like there's a little bit of, you know, when you have a little bit of success as an entrepreneur or as an executive, like you can be a little bit more fly by the seat of your pants and that doesn't always win deals. Yeah. Now winging it, especially in enterprise deals is a great way to butcher. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Any, I mean, this is just filled with nuggets throughout the entire time we're talking. Any last, any last parting wisdom or, or anything you want to share with the audience before we break? Yeah, I think I would say pick up the phone. Like, I feel like too many people are trying to sell and trying to convince people over email. And email is like such an easy way to just blow people off. It's, it's a lot harder to ignore your, you know, call your best customers, don't email them and call your best prospects and don't email them and like figure out how to get in front of them it is so much easier to do via the phone than via just sending an email off and, you know, kind of going like, Oh, I, I sent them an email, and they never responded. So I guess they don't want to hear from me so much. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree. How does the audience get more of you? LinkedIn, Twitter, blog, your Tumblr uh, page? Both. I got to get better about writing. That seems to be a consistent theme with all of your guests. I think that maybe that's a sales thing. Is <laughs> like We all love to write, but we, we aren't good about blocking out a couple of hours a day or at least you know half an hour a day or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, certainly LinkedIn, Twitter, which I'm using less and less of as it's starting to become like the new Facebook. Yeah, but you know, link, LinkedIn still hasn't quite gotten there yet, and so those are probably the two best ones. And I don't know my Mastodon account off the top of my head, so we'll <laughs> we'll stick with LinkedIn and Twitter, I guess. Yeah, we'll we'll post your MySpace page later. There we go, <laughs> Scott. This is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. We're gonna have to have you again and dive into a million other topics. And I can't wait. It's been fun. Absolutely, I enjoyed it, Alex. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Be good. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.